Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2 and going through verse 13. We're continuing our series in the book of Mark, which we got back into last week uh, with Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 13. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We've seen it dozens of times. The character in the story has been one thing the whole story. Just a man. Maybe a monster. A lesser version of himself. And then at the climax, the moment that we need the most, what we've been waiting for the whole time finally happens. He's transformed. Now he's exactly who he's supposed to be for the story. He's the Incredible Hulk and he is ready to smash. There are now two beauties and no beasts. He's no longer Gandalf the Grey, for this is Gandalf the White. The character has gone through a change which isn't a change so much as a revelation. This is who he actually is. But now everyone can see it. That's what happens to Jesus on the mountain in these verses. He's transformed, transfigured. And now everyone around can see him as he actually is. As he truly is. We talked last week about seeing Christ clearly. But this week, in these verses, we can focus on Christ clearly seen. And from our text, we can find four mysteries that the transfiguration reveals. There are four mysteries that the transfiguration shows us in these verses. The first of which is that Christ has the glory of God. He has the same glory. This passage is a close parallel to an important passage in the Old Testament. When Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, the Ten Commandments, and everything else that came with them, here's what Exodus 24, 15 through 18 says, which should be on the screen behind me. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. So here, the parallels are clear between the text we just read and our text today from Mark 9. We have a similar setting up on a high mountain. We have a similar time frame after six days. A similar occurrence, the glory of the Lord is revealed on the top of the mountain. 
a similar medium for God's voice. There's a cloud which surrounded the top of the mountain. A similar appearance. God's glory is like a devouring fire in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus is transfigured with radiant, dazzling white clothes. Mark's making the parallel between these two passages clear because the purpose of these parallels is to show that just as God revealed himself in his glory to Moses in Exodus, Jesus is revealing his glory to his disciples here in Mark. The stories are so similar because it's the same glory being revealed in both instances. He's the same God revealing himself as who he is with the same glory in both Testaments. And he's revealing himself to a chosen few here in these verses. He took with him Peter and James and John. I think it's significant who goes up the mountain with Jesus here. Only those three, Peter, James, and John. These three tend to form the the tightest inner circle within the disciples. Pretty much any time you see Jesus with a group of three, it's going to be Peter, James, and John. And in the early church, these three had the most leadership the most clout, the most authority in the churches in Jerusalem and in all the surrounding areas. And I actually think that we can tie some of that later authority, some of that later power to this revelation that we get here on the mountain. At the transfiguration, they saw Jesus for who he actually is. They see him clearly for the first time. And when you see Christ clearly, you can't help but be changed by that sight. You can't help but be a different person after you've seen who he actually is. 2 Corinthians 3.18 makes this clear. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This passage from 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about the same passage we just referred to back in Exodus. It's talking about the the text when Moses comes down the mountain after dealing with God. His face was shining out like the sun. He had to wear a veil so that, that the Israelites could look at him without being blinded by the glory that was shining out from the face of Moses. This verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is one of my favorite verses of all of Scripture because it forms the basis for my plan of discipleship. Paul here in 2 Corinthians is saying that the way to start to look like Christ is to look at Christ. That by beholding the image of Christ, you are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the other. That's my discipleship plan. I want to look at Christ as clearly as I can, as truly as I can, as often as I can from as many perspectives, situations, and scenarios as I can, and trust that by beholding his image, who he actually is, I will be transformed into that same image. That's why we read the Bible every day, to behold the image of Christ in Scripture. That's why we have to learn to see Christ in the Old Testament so we can behold him in all of Scripture, even when you're not in one of the Gospels where his name clearly is. That's why before we ever start talking about what we should do, we have to look at him and see what he's done. Because when you behold him, you will be transformed into his image. It's by looking at Christ that you become like Christ. You look at him and are transformed so that what you do can start to look at him, can start to look like him, just as your gaze has started to look at him. 
When you see his glory, you cannot help but be changed by it. So I think Peter, James, and John are different dudes walking down the mountain than they were when they were walking up. They are fundamentally changed by this instance of seeing Christ transfigured before them in his dazzling glory that he has always had. And that's why those three are the rock on which the church was built. Peter specifically, but James and John were right there with him. Those were the three that had the power. Those were the three that had the authority. And I think it's because they were able to see the radiating glory of Christ. They saw that radiating glory on full display. Look at verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. Whereas it was usually so easy for them to be fooled, to think that when they see him, he's just a man. Because that's what he looks like. He had no form or majesty that people would look at him, no beauty that they might desire him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Now, though, they are seeing him in an exalted state. He's transformed in front of them. Even his clothes are shining out with the white brilliance. They can finally see the radiating glory of Jesus as he actually is, as he always was. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Son is radiating the glory of the Father because the Son and the Father with the Spirit are one. It's the same glory, the same radiance, the same brilliance that they're seeing there on that mountain on full display. It's the same glory because it's the same God. If we were in doubt before, the transfiguration reveals that Jesus not only has, but is the glory of God. He is God revealed to his people. And he is also the center of scripture. That's the the second mystery that's revealed by the transfiguration in our text this morning. He is the center of scripture. Just as it was significant who went up the mountain with Jesus, it's significant who meets him there on the mountain. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. He goes up on the mountain, and Elijah and Moses appear and meet with him. Why? Why those two? If God's making dead people appear and talk to Jesus, he could have chosen anyone from the Old Testament, right? Why those two? Why Moses? Why Elijah? He had a lot of options. There's got to be a reason why those two. Even, why why just those two? Why stop it two? You're already, in some sense, resurrecting dead people to speak to Jesus on top of a mountain. Why two? Why not a whole horde, a whole choir of resurrected Old Testament saints who could show up and just have a chat? I think that it's Moses and Elijah to tell us something very specific about what is happening here on the mountain with Jesus. These two are chosen specifically to represent the shorthand phrase that people in this time would have usually used to refer to Scripture, to the Jewish faith. They would say, Moses and the prophets. 
the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets and the Psalms, or the writings. Moses represents the law. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, which contained the law, the Torah, and it was given to him on Mount Sinai. Elijah, as I've said many times throughout the book of Mark, is the peak of the Old Testament prophets. The books which form most of the rest of the Old Testament scriptures that these people would have been familiar with. Elijah is the peak of those prophets. The highest point of the rest of that Old Testament scripture. These two are appearing and speaking with Jesus because he is the one that they were both talking about. He's the one they were both hoping for. The one they were both waiting for. He is the fulfillment and the point. The very center and focus of all of scripture. Even in the Old Testament. Even when you don't see his name, he is still the point. He's still the focus. That fact is part of why I've been so excited for us to introduce our Song of the Month this month. It gives us just hints, just glimpses of how Christ can be the true and better Adam. The true and better Isaac. The true and better Moses. The true and better David. So that when we read the Old Testament, we can start to see how that Old Testament text, which doesn't mention Christ, is actually telling us something about Christ. It's pointing us to him as we read every story, even when his name is not there. He's there as the point of all of Scripture, and we just have to learn how to put the, all the individual story, stories together into the story, the one story, the big story of Scripture. Because within that big story, Christ is the center and focus of all of it. That's how we can see how it all fits together, how it all points to Christ. That's why I've been so excited for us to finally start singing this song. So that we can be reminded every time we sing it, Christ is the point. It doesn't matter where you are in scripture, Christ is the point. It doesn't matter what it's talking about, Christ is the point. It tells you that implicitly over and over so that we can see that it is his glory and his story from beginning to end. He is the fulfillment of the law. Those first five books are heralding the need for one to come and finally fulfill the law that was given to God's people. Adam failed in the garden, but he was promised that one would come who would not fail. Abraham was promised a people through his offspring who would make him into a great nation, and he never saw it. Moses led the people out of slavery, showing their need for a greater salvation, and he never saw that greater salvation. He receives the law, and before he's even able to tell it to the Israelites, they've already broken it. They needed one who would come and do these things, who would follow these instructions, who would fulfill the law perfectly because they could never do it. And in Christ, that's exactly what we have received. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came and lived the perfect life that you could not live. Every time we read a moral command in Scripture, what we should see is that that is a standard which we have failed to uphold. But Christ hasn't. Christ didn't. Where we have failed, he has remained faithful. So Moses appears to him and speaks with him because he is the one that Moses was waiting for. But just as he is the fulfillment of the law, he is also the fulfillment of all the prophets. All throughout Israel's history, the people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They fail to uphold the law as a people, so they require a king to rule over them and to make them follow the law. But their kings failed over and over, 
even David, the best of their kings, the best that they had, failed. Because while he was a great king, he was not the king of kings. They rebelled. They're eventually thrown into exile. They're waiting for a promised salvation which never came until Christ. Until he showed up. All of them were pointing to him. Were waiting for him. They needed a king to come and reign over their souls as well as their bodies. Who would conquer the sins and oppressors which ruled over them and restore his people into a great nation because they couldn't do it on their own. So every time we read a promise of goodness, every time we read a promise of great plans for God's people which will prosper them and not harm them, to give us a hope and a future, we should see that as being fulfilled in Christ. He is the king who has come to reign over the hearts of his people. He is the king whose kingdom will have no end. So to show us that, Elijah shows up and he speaks with him. Because he's the one the prophets were all talking about. He's the one the prophets were all waiting for. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And then transfiguration shows us that he is the center and the point of all of scripture. And he is that. Because the transfiguration also shows us that he is the only glorious one. That's the third mystery that's revealed by the transfiguration this morning. Christ is the only glorious one. And it is good to be in his presence. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Peter, we know Peter, never not one to speak up, says something that is great and true right before he immediately puts his foot in his mouth. He says... It's good that we're here. Don't underestimate the power of calling something good, which is good. It's like after a long day that you've spent with family. Maybe a long event. Maybe like a 4th of July celebration. You've been with family the whole day. It's been a whole day full of festivities. You've laughed. You've played. You've told stories. You've had good food. And now everything's winding down. Everything's coming to a close. You're exhausted. And then the person you're with, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a child, in a moment of stillness, when it's finally quiet and everything stops, they turn and they say, this was a good day. This was a good day. There's nothing that eloquent about that phrase. Just a few simple words. But in that moment, when you're there, When they turn and they say that, it feels like a profound statement of truth. Yeah, this was a good day. This is a day I'll remember. Nothing special happened, but it was good. And it feels good to call it good. That's what Peter does here. That's how he starts. It is good to be in the glorious presence of the only glorious one. And we should recognize that as good because one day we will enter into that presence. One day we will see that same glory that they saw on the mountain. One day we'll come into his presence and we will never leave. And that day will be a good day. It's a good day which becomes a good forever. Because his presence is greater than any other. See, if Peter would have just stopped there, what a sweet moment that would have been. Peter, being Peter, he keeps talking. He keeps going. Look at the rest of verse 5. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The text says he was terrified, and that's with good reason. He just went up on a mountain and saw his boss light up like a light bulb and all of his clothes turned dazzlingly white. And then he started talking to dead celebrities. You wouldn't know what to say either. You'd be terrified too. But Peter, being Peter, keeps talking. He keeps going. While he knows it's good that they're there, he misunderstands why it's good. He thinks it's good so that there's someone around to do some manual labor. He thinks it's good so there's someone around to build a few tents, to make a few tabernacles, where people can come and worship, where they can meet with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, all three at the same time. But Peter's plan, which in his mind is actually exalting Jesus to the place of Moses and Elijah, is actually denigrating Jesus to the place of Moses and Elijah. He's not just the one who came and got the law. He's not just the one who was the best of the prophets. He's the one they were all talking about. To worship him alongside Moses and Elijah, to talk to him alongside Moses and Elijah, is to completely miss the point of what was happening here on the mountain. Peter doesn't understand the fullness of what is right there. His statement puts Christ on the same level, the same mountain as Moses and Elijah. Peter, who just last week rightly, finally called Jesus the Christ, still doesn't understand the full magnitude of what it means for him to be the Christ. He is the Son of God who must be listened to. The voice out of the cloud sets Peter straight, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God speaks from the cloud and he silences Peter. Says, no, Jesus isn't just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah. He's not just another one along with them. He is the true and better Moses. The true and better Elijah. He's the son of God. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he must be listened to because he is the son of God. God shows up and says, Peter, you've got to stop trying to tell Jesus what to do. We saw that last week. You called him the Christ and you told him what to do and he called you Satan. This week, shows up, you say this is good and then you just keep going. You've got to learn when to stop, Peter. Because Peter's the guy who always takes it one step too far. He's the guy who's winning the argument, you're nodding along, and then he goes just that one step too far, and you have to ignore everything else he says after that. I used to work with a guy like that. We would get into arguments in the office all the time because we thought it was fun. We thought it was fun to debate things back and forth, particularly if they didn't matter. And he would start talking, and he'd get more passionate and louder, and I'd be right there with him. He'd say something like, I I hate Panera Bread. Panera Bread is so bland It's terrible. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. Good job. It's overpriced, too. It's like expensive hospital food. You have to go to a place, to a restaurant, where they make it for you. I'm nodding. Yes. Keep going. It's basically prison food. Okay. I I wouldn't have said that, but if you stop there, then, then, then we're basically fine. He says, I'd rather eat dirt than eat Panera Bread. You lost me. You can't say that. 
you would not rather eat dirt than eat Panera Bread. So now I have to disassociate myself with his entire line of argument. He went too far. I was right there with him. And then he just took it that one step too far. That's what Peter does here. So God tells him to be quiet. He tells him to listen to Jesus. Because Jesus is his son. Jesus is the one who's going to bring the greater revelation than Moses and Elijah either one could. Jesus is enough. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The Son of God, who must be listened to, is enough. When the cloud dissipates, when Moses and Elijah are gone, it's just Jesus. And that's because just Jesus is enough. Where before he came, the law and the prophets spoke to us for God. Now Jesus, who is God, speaks to his people. He fulfilled the old covenant law, and he was the one the prophets were prophesying about. So now, just having him, just following him, that's sufficient. He is the beloved Son of God. Listen to him. That's enough. The transfiguration shows us that he is the only glorious one, and that's enough. He's the only one we need. Because he's the suffering servant. It's the final mystery that the transfiguration reveals to us from our text this morning, that Christ is the suffering servant. We've referred that to that same passage, that same chapter in Isaiah 53, several times throughout the book of Mark, because we are shown over and over and over again how Christ fulfills not only that prophecy, but all of the prophecies. He had to die, and he had to rise again. I don't think the placement and timing of the transfiguration here is by accident. We just got that same connection last week, that the Christ who is to come has to suffer and die. And we get that reiterated here. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He tells his disciples not to tell anyone about this until after he's come back from the dead, which he predicted he was going to do last week in Mark 8. In Mark 8. He's the one who's come to suffer and die in the place of his people so that when he comes back to life, he can do that in the place of his people as well. For that's why he came. Salvation can only come through suffering. But just like last week, the disciples still don't get this. Look at the rest of our passage this morning. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how was it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They aren't confused by the words. They're not confused by the literal meaning of dying and coming back to life. They don't understand how the Son of God, whose glory they just saw up on this mountain, how he could ever die so that he would have to rise again. That's their question. They say, no, 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 we've acknowledged you are the Messiah. We just saw the glory of you as the Messiah. What do you mean you're going to have to die and come back to life? That doesn't work, Jesus. The Messiah doesn't do that. He comes and he reigns. He has power. They still don't understand 
that in order for him to be the Messiah, he has to die. He has to suffer for them. They're confused, so they ask him a question, trying to clarify the order of things. They're referring back to uh, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, which should be on the screen behind me. These are the final words in the Christian Old Testament. And it says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, the Jewish people of that day took that passage to mean that literal Elijah would come and he would restore the nation of Israel. He would do so morally. He would turn all the hearts of the people back to each other. That would set the stage for the final kingdom of God to be ushered in by the Messiah. But who do they just see on the mountain? They just saw Elijah. They're confused because if Elijah, the one they just saw, is supposed to come and fix the hearts of everyone before the Messiah comes to reign, and they know that Jesus is the Messiah, then what's all this suffering and dying talking about? Elijah came. Did he not do his job? Is the Messiah not going to reign after him? Do you see the problem there? Everyone's hearts are supposed to be fixed after Elijah shows up. So who's left to persecute the Messiah? Who's left to kill him? Who's left to make him suffer and die if the hearts of everyone have been turned toward each other and everyone's been morally fixed? See, they don't have a problem with Jesus being the Messiah. They don't have a problem with Elijah coming. They don't have a problem with the coming kingdom. They have a problem with a Messiah who suffers, a Messiah who dies, as Jesus keeps telling them over and over that he will, that he's going to. See, it doesn't compute for them. How can he be the one who rules and reigns and saves if he's also one who dies? We know that that's what's happening because Jesus' answer when he flips the question back on them. That second question in the text comes from Jesus. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, Jesus knows their real question. He says, you guys are asking this academic question about, uh, does Elijah come first, or how's the order of all these things? He's saying, no, what you're really asking is, how do I suffer and still be the Messiah? He's getting to what they're actually asking and answering that truer question. You see, the Elijah who came, that he's referring to here, that was John the Baptist. And he was brutally killed. He was brutally beheaded. So if the prophesied Elijah has suffered and died, and yet did exactly what he was supposed to do as the prophesied Elijah. It shouldn't shock them that the Messiah in front of them will also suffer and die, doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He's hammering it in over and over to his people that without the suffering of Christ on the cross, there's no salvation from Christ the Messiah. If Christ doesn't die on the cross for your sins, there's no forgiveness to be had. There's no victory that's been won. You couldn't fulfill the law, so he did. You weren't the fulfillment of the prophecies. He was. You couldn't earn your salvation, so he earned it for you. You couldn't get to life after death, so he's given it to you. That's the gospel. That's what the Messiah came to do. That's who he is and what he's done. 
He came to fulfill the law in your place, to be the one the prophets pointed to in your place, to die the death that you deserve to die in your place, to raise to life again in your place. That's the gospel. And it's only achieved through the suffering of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus. And the transfiguration reveals that mystery to us. That's what it shows us. That this is who he is and what he's done. This is who he is. The one with the same glory of God. The one who's the center of all of scripture. The one who is the suffering servant. The one who came to suffer and die in our place. That's what the transfiguration shows us. You might notice this morning that I haven't given you much to do out of this text. There's been very little application. There's been very little that I say, you read this, therefore, now you go and do likewise. The sermon's been pretty light on that kind of thing. One of my favorite preachers has said that for some texts, for some sermons, there is no application to be had other than for the preacher to tell his hearers, behold your God. Look at him. Understand him. See him. And I think that this is one of those passages. When you're faced with the reality of the glory of God in Christ, when you are given the opportunity to see Christ clearly, as he is clearly revealed in this text this morning, all that's left for you to do is to behold your God, to see him as he is, see his glory and his goodness on full display, and then let that beholding, let that seeing, transform you into that same image until you look like the transfigured Christ. Keep beholding. Keep looking. Because as long as you look and as long as you behold, there will always be more to see when you see who Christ truly is. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to see you more clearly. Thank you for sending your son to do the work that you sent him to do. Thank you for the work he's accomplished for us, in our place, on our behalf. Thank you for the perfect life, sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, and the glorious ascension of Jesus. Let us hope and trust and who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And know that if we respond to that through repentance and faith, we can be saved just as Christ came to do. Let us see you clearly, not only today, but every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.